This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. Not only very special, but if you're in Queensland, an hour earlier than normal because of daylight saving, as we said on Friday. Uh, I'm joined by the man, the myth, the legend, the man behind the curtain, the man behind the glass, the man behind the man of straw, Andrew Page. How are you, buddy? I'm very good, sir. Always, always good to chat to you. How are things? It is always fun, mate. Things are very good at my end. Uh, after having some really hot weather last week, it's now really cold. It was yeah. uh, six degrees here this morning. Felt like one. Uh, wow. So I'm, uh, yeah. Look, <laughs> I, we had we had a day of spring, and then not so much. But yeah, you know, it's going to come back. I'm sure. So I'm optimistic, but like, you know, can't complain, mate. Life is good. And you? It's gonna it's gonna come back with a vengeance. So if uh, some of these longer term forecasts are, are to be believed, so careful what you, know. you wish for, mate. I, yeah. uh, I I remember the 2019-20 bushfires. Uh, I didn't mow the lawn the entire summer. I just there was not enough. You know, it's, right. we didn't water it, so there was there was not enough. Just, there was nothing to mow. And yeah. this this time around, it's kind of feels a bit the same. I haven't pulled the lawnmower out. You know, uh, early October. I'm not sure. Again, it depends when the rain falls, but it's, it might be a uh, it might be a, a low mo kind of summer, which yeah. I don't mind personally. I can do without the work, but uh, it's kind of a yeah. It's, it's a very real world example of what's going on. The years in between, by the way, I was mowing every two, every two weeks because you know we get rain and sun and rain and sun. So yeah, it could be a, it could be a tough old summer. I think. Oh, I think so. I think so. Um, anyway. Mm. There's, there's always there's always something to be depressed about. Maybe there's something <laughs> you'd be happy about as well. There is always. You know what is good to be happy about. Because when you get to ask someone a question and you, you just take joy in the answer, it makes me happy. It makes me happy, right? I'm glad someone's happy. <laughs> what, what, what exactly is- Go ahead. Go, there you go. Um, we're a private online investment club. I'm very glad to hear it. Yeah. Mate, um, Brent sent us a question. Okay. He says, good morning, Scott. I own Amazon for full disclosure, Phillips and Andrew, X ways to skin a cat page. Sorry, gents. I couldn't help myself, says Brent. I thought your recent episode on some of the frequently encountered investing and accounting terms was excellent. He says in brackets, actually, all episodes are excellent. This was even excellenter. Thank you, Brent. But it left me with a question that seems a little daft, but I need to ask it anyway. In the PE ratio, what exactly is the E? Have taxes, hmm. dividends, amortization, and depreciation, etc., already been accounted for here? Again, maybe everyone knows this, but me. But I'd love to get to the bottom of this simple ratio. I also want to thank you sincerely for the resource. Prior to religiously listening to the Motley Fool Money podcast, I reckon I made almost every mistake an investor can make, including, but not limited to, taking advice from mates, buying expecting the share price to go up, buying something outside my field of confidence, not selling what I should have because I didn't know what I owned, and buying the hot stock. I can't recall exactly when I first started listening to the podcast, but I reckon I could find the date simply by looking at my transaction history. The shares I owned previously are all over the place, whereas the ones purchased after I started listening to the pod are well thought out, and I feel I have a really good understanding of what the companies do, how they make money, and what to expect if any aspects change for that company. I accomplish this, he says, by creating a single A4 sheet for myself, where I must understand the following before buying a stock. And he listed, he says, what does the company actually do? Profitability, bear points, bull points. What do I want to achieve? And possible selling point if applicable. I'm mentioning this in case other listeners might find some of this useful. Full on and go Carlton and the Brisbane Broncos. Mm -hmm. Warmest regards, Brent. 
Unfortunately for Brent, that was sent before Carling, uh, Carlton was knocked out and the Broncos got done in the grand final. So, Brent, my apologies for your teams not quite making it as far as you would have liked them to. I should say, I've got to throw this in. My young bloke is a Panthers fan and uh, we managed to jag some tickets up with the nosebleeds for the grand final. And uh, it was a roller coaster of an event. The poor kid was morose uh, halfway through the second half. If you watch the game, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And then the last 17 minutes, he just went bananas. So it was a it was a hell of a roller coaster for him and for the family. <laughs> so I'm sorry cool. that I'm sorry the Bronx got done, Brent. But uh, I'm 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 half my young luck. I can't be too sorry because uh, he he had a great time. Um, mate, let's uh, let, let's talk not about me and football. Let's get back to the E in the PE ratio. Uh, you can tell us what the E stands for, but I'm also curious as to what the benefits, uh, risks, downsides of using the PE ratio might be. Yeah, um, I'll just start by saying that is just like, I think it's the highest praise uh, we've ever had. I, I love mm. it, you know, like that is uh, to, to, um, to get to a point where the process has been so far refined. It's just, gosh, it fills, fills my heart with joy. I think it's, it's, it's so great. If all of us could just get a one pager together, I think we'd all, we'd all be um, much better investors. So that's just, that is awesome. Um, the other thing I wanted to say before getting into the answer is just so happens just last week, I wrote an article. It's on our blog, strawman.com slash blog, just to shill it called dumb questions. <laughs> nice. And, and I, I just, I, I really, really lean into this um, is, is that there are, you know, the whole Carl, Carl Sagan thing, there is, there is no such thing as a dumb question. Yeah. Every question is a cry to understand the world. So I love it. I came across a quote the other day, actually, from Rory Sutherland, who's a bit of a marketing guru, and he's got some really great quotes. Um, but one of them that I really loved was, to reach intelligent answers, you often need to ask really dumb questions. Oh, no. So I, I just, I love it. And and the, the, the piece I wrote was just on um, uh, how I, I think it's actually a bit of a superpower when it comes to mm. investing, because too mm. often we're, we're so, we're, so, we're social animals mm. and- we have a great fear of looking dumb in front of our peers. Yeah. And so the amount of time we're not along trying to pretend what we know, you know, we know what's going on when we don't mm. is, is too often. And the idea with investing is to, you know, shepherd your capital in a prudent and sensible way and grow it over time. If you're there for the ego, you know, yeah. become a stockbroker, right? Like, but if you're, <laughs> if you're there for, <laughs> sorry, sorry, stockbrokers. Um, but if you're yeah. there to actually like get the job yeah. done, yeah. you need to put your ego aside. And that means asking the dumb questions. And I'll, I will say this, every time you ask a quote unquote dumb question, there's at least 50% of the room or the audience mm. that goes, oh my God, I'm so glad that they asked that. Cause I was also wondering what that is. And uh, yeah, anyway, so I'll- I've, I'll, got, I'll, I've got to say just quickly around, but before yeah. we move on to the answer, when you said every time you ask a dumb question, I'm just internally grateful you didn't finish with an angel gets its wings because that was what my <laughs> that was what my head went to. Every time you ask a dumb question, I thought, does an angel get its wings and we're done here. So I, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to uh, cut the podcast short. But thank you. Uh, yeah, no, no, no need for the edit button. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I, I just, I so firmly believe in, in all yeah, of that kind right. of stuff yep. as well. I and I, I, I also think too that just a, when I look around, I mean, I guess my broader peer group, the investors I really respect tend to be people who don't come from the industry proper mm -hmm. or from the traditional kind of path into it. Often outsiders who have just gotten a curiosity for it and have just learned on the go, making all the dumb mistakes as we all do. Um, you know, that's you. You didn't come from the traditional background, right? Um, 
and I won't go list list off a bunch of names, but it's it tends to be the case. And the more enshrined you are in the traditional sort of mold of the quote unquote financial advisor, or it's not you know, or the or the stockbroker, yeah. whatever. It's just the more prone you are to sort of groupthink and a lot of the nonsense that goes out there. So anyway, that's enough. So true, mate. Flogged that horse to death. It's actually just quickly why I don't. Yeah. Uh, I've I've twice started the. The uh, uh, graduate diploma in applied finance and investment. It's kind of the the holy grail of of you know analyst courses offered by the Skewers Institute now run by Kaplan, I think. But um, I tried it twice, and it's if you haven't done any if you haven't done any accounting at all, and you haven't invested before, I wouldn't say it's useless. Mm. But it's kind of one of those things. It's like academics still teaching the efficient markets hypothesis because that's yeah. what they all teach, and so that's what they all learn. And it's one of yeah. those things where you'll learn what everyone else learns, and it's not. There's some really good foundational stuff in there. Um, and again, I won't say I, I didn't. I got nothing from it. I did a couple of subjects and just never quite got the. Thing. No, I just like you. Just you're teaching me. By the way, I think you and I've said this before. When you when you have to, there's a test you have to pass to give financial advice. It's called the RG146 because a regulatory guide 146 is the ASIC rule that it follows. And they ask you these questions, and you have to sometimes answer the question uh, it quotes correctly. As opposed to what I actually think the reality is, so yeah. you know, I know, the, I know the what the answer you correct, want me right? to give is, exactly, but exactly. it's not the answer I would give. I disagree. Yeah. With, I think it's wrong, but I'll have to answer it this way because I, yeah, if I chose C rather than D, I get the answer wrong. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, yeah. back to back to PE. Okay, great question. Uh, e is uh, earnings, net mm-hmm. profit. Uh, so dividends get paid out after the fact, mm-hmm. but tax, depreciation, every other cost is there. So this is the E on a statutory basis as mm-hmm. reported in the financial statements. So it, it's the net profit, the net um, after everything. The bottomest uh, of bottom lines. The bottomest of bottom lines divided by the number of shares on issue because mm-hmm. we're talking about a individual share price. If you did market really cap divided by net profit, it yes, would be the really same point. same thing. Yes. Um, so it's just, it's just one of many ways to sort of benchmark price. We're just trying to sort of tie price to some underlying metric in the business. So you can also have price to book ratios, you can have price to cash flow, you can have price, you know, enterprise value to EBITDA and all, you know, the list goes on and on and on and on. And they all have advantages and, and weaknesses, but as a single point, um, uh, a single metric, P is a pretty common one. And I actually think it's a pretty good one. I, it gets a lot of, I'll, we'll go through the limitations in, in a moment, but I think as a heuristic, which is all it is, it's it's something that allows you to very quickly um, class something as expensive or or quote unquote cheap. Um, however, <laughs> uh, a couple of things. One, it is statutory earnings, so there could be like a whole bunch of non-cash items in that income statement that mm-hmm. don't reflect the true cash generative power of the business. And when we say statutory, we're really saying according to some arbitrary accounting rules. Yes. As opposed to, and, the, and, the, and the, it's, it's absolutely, it's factually correct. The, these companies are preparing them according to the rules. The yep. rules aren't necessarily always as illustrative as they might be. Other times you get, I mean, there's a business recently, they've since changed their policy. Um, it's Objective Corp, which I've talked mm. about before. But they, they always used to expense all of their development because there's an IT company, right, mm. essentially. So they just thought, well, why wouldn't we expense it all? But it's not the norm. Most people, most companies, uh, what they, it's called capitalize, capitalizing the cost. Mm-hmm. So it actually goes on the balance sheet. It's like, well, this is an investment. It wasn't an expense. Mm. And anyway, the, the effect is, is that it boosts the earnings. 
Um, so you you need to you need to sort of dig in below that. Um, sometimes you get these other things where it's sort of like there'll be big write downs, and they'll say, "Oh, they're non cash. You know, we had this horrible investment. We wrote it. It was carried on the balance sheet at a you know hundred million. Now it's worth zero. So it was a hundred million dollar loss. But on an underlying basis, this is what the earnings were. And you need to know what sort of metrics or what what numbers are being plugged in to to the formulas you may be just getting on Yahoo Finance or Comsec or somewhere like that, which is why it's often, frankly, just open up the open up the actual company annual report and look at look at a figure and and calculate it yourself. It really is just the share price divided by the earning per share, and you've you've had a bit of time to sort of look at look at uh, look at it. So there's all of that. Um, the other thing that's tricky is as well is that uh, a P of fifty might represent a company that's super cheap and a P of four might be a company that's super expensive because the latter is going bankrupt next year and the other one is compounding its profit at 50% per annum and is expected to do so for 10 years. Yeah. You know, it's, it's much cheaper. So you, you, can't, you can't have these, these, these general rules can really lead you astray very, very quickly. And this is why people sort of point to some of the limitations of this. Having said that, I think if you've got a reasonable sense of the business of the number, you've got a reasonable indication of how you feel that can grow, then I think it's actually a very quick and dirty, but not not terrible way of valuing a business. If we're looking at something like a Woolies, mm. for example, I think PE is a, a pretty good benchmark to use. If you're using a, well, if you're using a pre-profit small cap, it's useless because you don't even have an E to plug into the formula. <laughs> Um, so there's a lots of ifs, ands, and buts there, and it's not the, it's not the easy answer that, that perhaps you're, you're after. Um, but I'll, I'll let you riff on it for a while, mate. How, how would you how would you cut that cut that up? Mate, I think you've done a perfect job, actually. I I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's investors. We talk a lot about journeys, and hopefully, if you learn from our journeys, you will have make less mistakes on the way. You start with knowing things like PEs, and then someone get whispers in your ear. Oh, yeah, but that's not right. There's this is it's wrong for these reasons. So be more complex and add, add more things to it. And so I've I've done the same. I've said before, mate, I, I started with PE, then you go to cash and cash is king, of course. And, you know, everyone talks about cash and cash is the only thing that matters. Okay, so you do that for a while and then you realize that actually cash is often lumpier than profit. And so the, the idea of, you know, where the accounting rules do work, you talk about uh, amortization of, of expenses or, or depreciation of um, of a capital expenditure on, on IT, for example, or development costs versus expensing it. There's, there's two really interesting ways to look at that. I mean, accounting says you match the revenues and the expenses. So if I'm going to make a piece of software and then sell that for 10 years, the expense, the cash expenses in year one, but it's no different to buying a machine, using the machine for 10 years, then junking it. The same is actually true with the software. If you're, if you're designing a program or a bit of software or something and you use it for 10 years, then neither is right or wrong to, to your point, mm. mate. This is, this is where it's important. This is where the PE is. You do need to go and know what's in there. Um, mm. I'll, I'll add to your thoughts about that in a second. Uh, but you know, if you if you were to say I'm going to invest ten million dollars every ten years in in redeveloping the software, but nothing in between, mm-hmm. I'm going to make it, and then ten years I'm going to make the second version of it. You're going to have ten million dollars in expenses in year one, nothing for the next nine years, where it looks really profitable because no expenses. Another ten million dollars in year ten, and you go, oh, I didn't expect that. I thought this business was a certain, was a certain way. If you amortize or depreciate it, and more more importantly, to a million dollars a year, you get more of a sense of the ongoing impost that keeping this business running costs. Now, neither is better or worse. It's more conservative to expense the whole lot up front. But if you're trying to look at a, a range, say, what is the future profit likely to look like? Sometimes that depreciation or amortization charge is actually more indicative of the ongoing earnings power of the business. I think that's my, 
I, I, I love your idea of pulling up the, the balance sheet, mate, and pulling up the P&L. It's really, really, expen- really, really important. Mm. I would say what I like about that normally is when you get to see the year-on-year changes. So look down the, look down the P&L and see where numbers have changed materially between years. And that's when you pick up things like changes in that sort of policy or one-off charges or whatever. And it just gives you a sense of how, how regular that is. And I was going to say exactly the same thing about Woolies, actually, mate. If mm. you want to understand balance sheets and P&Ls, start with Woolies. Mm. You know, the, particularly these days, there's no liquor business there anymore. It's basically food and Big W. Yep. And so you can just kind of look at that and understand exactly what's going on because it's a really easy business to understand. They, they, they buy groceries, they sell groceries. Uh, you, you can see the revenue line, the cost of goods line, you see their gross margins, see how they change over time. You can see selling in general administrative expenses. So you've got marketing there, you've normally got R&D, you've got other things. It's just, a, and because you know the business, it's really, it's not a, not a startup business. It's not a particularly volatile earnings or profit. You know, so revenue or profit, you can see a pretty good sign of it. So I, I think PE is great. Um, a really, really good start. Just don't, um, just be careful that, as Andrew said, you don't, take any number for granted look at the growth of the business look at the expectations uh, but it's a really really good start last thing for me just because you asked about dividends brent i just want to mention that one um <clears throat> dividends aren't part of the profit and loss of a business it's how the profit is then subsequently distributed yeah so it shouldn't be included in earnings because it's you know if it's if not a you, cost right exactly hmm. imagine imagine a scenario where you had a bank account and you, the p l of that bank account is there was money there I earned $4 of interest during the year. Uh, end of the year, I had $4. I took the money out. The bank account doesn't make no profit because you took the money out eventually and put it in your own bank account and spent it. The, 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 the profit of the, the bank account during the year was that $4. So yeah, the dividends aren't a cost. Um, just keep them separately. Taxes, absolutely. Amortization, absolutely. Depreciation, absolutely. Those things are all included. Um, so yeah, a really, really good question, mate. Hopefully that helps. Love, by the way, your A4 sheet. Um, you said, I love you know, it. What does the company do? Profitability, bare profitable points. What I want Genius. to achieve, possible selling point. They're all really great. Um, I think it's. I think it's fantastic. Uh, the only thing I would say is the what do I want to achieve? Just be um, sanguine about the timeframes and the specifics of that. Uh, and, and as you go through the life of that investment, um, just don't. I've said millions of times. My biggest failures have been selling too early, not holding too long. Yeah. Uh, and so when I say what do I want to achieve. Just be careful you don't say, oh, I want the profit to double or I want the share price to double or something else. Because at that point, uh, maybe it's all over. Maybe this is a business that never deserved that. Maybe it's too expensive, all that kind of stuff. Or maybe uh, it's Woolies going from $2 to $4 or profit going from whatever it used to be to some higher level and then goes on for multiples after that. So I, I love it. Um, when you think about selling points and what you want to achieve, just, just kind of keep that in mind that uh, hitting a milestone maybe that's the better way to do it think about it as a milestone not as an end mm. point unless yeah, that, nice. unless the end point is if it's, if it's 85 times earnings okay maybe I sell if you know I, I want to own this until growth stops then of course that's a decent reason to sell as well but just be just be mindful you don't artificially put an end point on your investings yep love it um, Ram uh, Brent gave us a, a nice starting point uh, Anthony's gone one step further uh, he says, greetings, Scott and Ram. I have a new intro for your show using all your sayings and isms that you use, proving I'm a long-term listener to the podcast machine. He's already started. Scott, good morning and welcome to Motley Fool Money, very special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Abbott Phillips and with me as usual, the amazing Andrew Costello, Ram Page Esquire. And tell me what is, by definition, that straw man thing. 
Is it about Bitcoin? You know, one of those cryptos? I'd love you to divulge that to the retail investors. Ram. Well, it depends, but let me square that circle for you so you can just buy an ETF and go and play golf. It's a private online investment club. Or it could be an online private investment club. And don't start me on a rant about whether Bitcoin is just another crypto. <laughs> the, uh, uh, yeah. Nine and, a half, nine and a half out of 10. The, 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 the just uh, You almost got it perfect. You just failed to... You needed to put a property rank property, in there. Yes. And then that just would have been absolutely no. But I love it. It's fantastic. Well done, Anthony. He says, anyway, on to my question. I've held the Vanguard Australian Shares Index ETF or VAS, as Scott would rather me not call it, thank you, for my children a few years ago. Uh, Sorry, for a few years. And I always talk about shares and investing with them, but they show little interest. So for my next purchase for them, I asked what companies they would like ownership in. My 14-year-old daughter is an aviation buff. So she said, Qantas, they made a $1 billion profit. I quickly retorted saying that's probably the best they'll get and its share price may not go much higher, at least in the short term, with the headwinds they're facing. So, says Anthony, do I listen to my logical side of the brain and stick the money, albeit small, in a boring, broad-based, low-cost index ETF and go fishing, or listen to my emotional side of the brain and put it in Qantas and get her more interested in investing, even if this is the best it gets for Qantas? Please discuss. Regards, Anthony. Really good, Mm. solid question. Uh, What do you reckon, Ram? Um... So, yeah. <laughs> here, like, like, my kids are 14 and 10. Um, so, I don't pretend to be a, parent, a, parent, a parental expert. Mm. Um, still still got to go to the meaty chunk of the, you know, the teenage years. <laughs> exactly. So, but I do, I, I have come to the realization that you, no amount of logic and reason and patient explanation is ever going to get the lesson across. <laughs> Maybe that's just my kids. I think, and I was the same. And I think mm-hmm. you, I think you kind of, you need to, some lessons you just kind of need to learn the hard way. You know, mm-hmm. don't jump on that. You're going to hurt yourself. Don't do it. Don't do it. Oh, that you hurt yourself. I told you, <laughs> you know, every time. Um, so I would be tempted. I would be tempted to say, all right, because Buy some Qantas shares because um, uh, you not that you want to lose money. You don't have to invest like the you know back up the truck and, and bet the farm on it. But if you put a bit of money there, you know, five hundred dollars into it and it drops down, you know, fifty percent. It's like well, it kind of sucks, but it's not the end of the world kind of yeah. thing. And that's a pretty potent lesson. Well, why did that happen? You know, we here's a company making a billion dollars that everyone talks about. It's been around for a long time. That's a very powerful lesson. And I, I don't know that by you know, again, a patient explanation of all the reasons why Qantas sucks is is probably <laughs> not going to to yeah. to hit. Uh, I'll shill Strawman just very quickly, and I'll do it in a in a in a way where it doesn't help me at all. Listen, uh, won't even notice. You won't even notice, and and that is create a free account, right? So we yeah. just just create a free account, and then you've you got a you got a hundred thousand dollars in play money. So you can kind of do this as well. It's just sort of like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna do this as a family. Everyone create an account, mm-hmm. buy what you like. And uh, we'll see how we all go. And it'll be a bit of fun, but it kind of lets you have a bit of a lesson and a bit of an experience without, without having to sort of uh, yeah, lose, lose money um, along the way. 
And then you can just put the rest into an ETF and then one day they'll be 25 and they'll go, oh my gosh, dad, you're a genius. Why didn't I listen to you? That, that was brilliant. Thank you so much for not putting all of my, my yeah. inheritance into Qantas and into this instead. Uh, of course, I am hyper aware that someone listening to this mm. in 10 years time will go, yeah, Qantas is 10X from when you made <laughs> That's right. these comments. I don't think so, but there's, there's, that's 10 times how the chance. universe works. But yeah, correct. Yeah, I don't know. How, how would you go about it, mate? I, I love that answer, mate. I would do something very similar. I think Strawman's a great example, actually. Great way to do it. Um, I would... So I think when you when you think about investing into... I, I love the idea, Anthony, of buying companies your kids are interested in. I really, really, really do. I think if you want to get people interested in investing as, as such, I've said before, I've had family members who bought shares in David Jones or Meyer and walked in and went... I feel different. I feel like I own part of this place. And I look around now and I kind of, you know, I, I see this as a business, not as a place to shop. Yep. Uh, same with Woolies. And I think that's really, really, really important. I think I would absolutely encourage you to do it. What I, here's what I would say, and it's kind of what you said around, but I'll say it just slightly differently. I would take most of the money you're investing for your kids and put it in an index ETF. Uh, I would, by the way, consider adding an international into ETF as well as the Vanguard Australian shares one, but that's up to you. Um, not personal advice as always. But what I, so what I've done for my young bloke, we've got money for him in a, in a Perler account. I've been adding to that sort of semi-regularly. Uh, I've also given him, I think I've said this before, a Sharesies account. Now, I do some work with Sharesies for full disclosure. Uh, the Motley Fool also has a slight relationship with Perla, um, where if you join one of our services, you get some free brokerage. We get no money out of it at all. Um, it's a benefit for our members, but just let you disclose and disclose and disclose so it can be, any, can be no, uh, no questions and no mistakes. On top of that, when my young bloke gets some pocket money, uh, 10% of that goes into investing. And so he puts that money into a, I put it before him into a shares account and we've said we'll match him dollar for dollar. Now, I'm not giving you any, any family secrets here to say there is currently $172.89 in that account, right? So your point about breaking the bank ramp. Now, the good thing about, and again, not a plug for shares, but you can do fractional shares. It's not chess sponsored, which I don't love, uh, but it's also a tiny amount of money. So if it, if it all goes pear-shaped and so bad, I don't think it will, but just to put all that stuff out there for people. Uh, and in that account, he's got 0.34 of an Amazon share, 0.3 of an ARB share, 0.07 of a Tesla share, 0.07 of Microsoft share, and 0.8451 Woolworth shares. Now, nice. why I did that was because he's choosing the companies. And he gets to see it go up. So at the moment, that $172 is up, apparently, according to their, I'm just opening the app, he's made $25. So obviously put in 150 odd, up 25 bucks. So he gets to see he's made $125 for doing nothing. So that that's a win, right? He gets to see that the shares, the companies he wanted, he chose all of those companies. Uh, what, should, what should we invest in? I don't know. What, what do you like? What do you see? What do you think is good? He said to me, what do you think? So we had that conversation and he took some of my advice and some of his own stuff. And uh, I'm not a Tesla shareholder. He wanted to buy Tesla because he thinks they're cool. That's great. It's really great. Um, so now he's got that portfolio. So I would, I would absolutely encourage parents I'm, I'm no expert either ram um but i'd encu absolutely encourage parents to do both i think mm. put large if you've got the opportunity and you want to put larger chunks away for your grandparents if you are grandparents that want to do that for grandkids then i think you want to invest larger chunks in an etf or even individual shares if you want to but the, the larger amount of money kind of the, the long term doesn't require your kid to make that call i think i think i would i would put most of my investable cash for the kids in that um Part of the the account we've got for my young bloke is we're saying to him, ten percent of your money goes into investing. He hates it. He wants to buy Lego with it, right? Uh, but he knows that that's what we do, and that's how we do it. And that's it's building that discipline and that lifelong, hopefully, uh, lesson of putting ten percent of your income into investing. 
So 10% of his pocket money, if he, we collect those cans, he you know, cashes the cans, he gets money for that. 10% of that goes into investing. He gets to choose it. He's involved in it. He sees it go up and down. Sometimes he's disappointed. Sometimes he's happy. Um, but sees it over time. And I'm, I'm reasonably convinced. I did kind of guide him to make sure it's a little bit diversified so that we had bits of everything. Um, so that, you know, if, I wouldn't just do it in Qantas, for example, on your, on your daughter's behalf, Anthony. But uh, and she wants to. I guess that works. But, you know, Qantas get it a pick five or seven and say, right, you can you can choose. Let's div- divvy them up. And they can be, as I said, on this, I think... Um, I'm sure other companies do it, not just shares. It's not a plug for them, but something just where they buy fractional shares of anything, and that that's the way it works. So you kind of you can take a really small amount of money, broaden it out, and and diversify really simply. Give them that opportunity to choose and be invested and be engaged with it. And when she sees the Qantas share price or the Qantas fly, plane flies overhead, she'll think oh, we own some of that, and that is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else Love from it. you, mate? No, I, no, I think that's right. I mean, the the the, the other thing is you you have to stick at it because mm. th- there is always the risk of learning the wrong lesson, which is you go, yeah. hey, I'm going to do this. This is great. And then 12 <laughs> months later, their portfolio is down 30%. Even if it's like, oh, no, they picked really good companies. Yeah. You know, it's what markets do. And the takeaway from that, if you're not careful, is, oh, investing sucks. Yeah, correct. Like, why would have I done that? I, I could have, I you know, I could have... Um, just left it in the bank and would have been far better off. Oh, thank God I learned that lesson. I'm never going to invest in shares again. <laughs> yeah, and a, right. a lot guy. of adults learn that lesson. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I can tell you because I've been through so many cycles is that no one's interested in shares until right. the market is like raging. Yeah, yeah And there is exactly. no greater tragedy than watching so your neighbor get rich while you don't, mm-hmm. um, as the old saying goes. And so you go, oh, that is, <laughs> oh, okay, I'm in. <laughs> So you do. I mean, by the way, this yeah. is this isn't people being dumb. Like Isaac yes. Newton yeah. invested in the South Sea bubble, uh, or mm-hmm. was it Tulips? One of the two, I forget. South um, Sea. Yeah, right at the peak, mm-hmm. lost lost a fortune. A yes. whole bunch of really notable intellectuals from the earlier eras lost a whole bunch of money on. And Keynes got on, wiped out during the Great Depression. Didn't he? <laughs> yeah, Keynes, right? You know, and it's sort of it's sort of like it, it it's easy to sort of laugh and mock but it's just yeah, we're yeah. very human in nature and i i know all four of my friends as well i can't they just i cannot get them to invest no matter how i try <laughs> you know but the yeah. phone starts ringing when yeah, when yeah. Yeah, it's on the right. news you know and that's when they pile in yeah. usually right at the top yeah and then you know six Blame to you twelve back down yeah two, two years like down oh this sucks <laughs> you know you, you told me that this one was good it's not their fault it's totally yeah. my fault yeah. for some reason and it's just, and it's just. That's why I think when you when you can kind of frame that mm. from the mm. outset, like mm. by the way, this is very good chance that this happens, <laughs> like at least a, a 50-50 chance over the next twelve months, right? So so stick at it because that's when the lessons will sort of come through, and that's why it's always a bit of fun with some play money, or just in your case with Sharesies or one of these other apps where it's just it's not it's kind of like you know small change. You, you can sort of have those lessons without the brutal, crippling financial ruin <laughs> that might come with it for yeah. those that, that sort of pile in everything at the top. Like it. Um, mate, let's move on to another question. Get through them, which is kind of nice today. Uh, question from Matthew. He says, G'day, gents. Another couple of questions for the pod, if you don't mind. I've only got a couple of drives left to footy this year as we're in the prelim final this week and hopefully onto the G final the week before the AFL. Now, obviously, this was sent a couple of weeks ago. So hopefully, Matthew, it went well for you. Let us know. I may just continue to drive down to the club and back twice a week just to listen to the pod. It's that good. <laughs> oh, Matthew, seriously. Uh, enough tangents. Onto the good stuff, he says. Question. Are there a certain number of questions you ask yourself or a certain number of things you tick off 
before buying a stock. E.g., would a random person go through five criteria before a stock is purchased? He then says, if I'm a long-term investor, how often do you reevaluate a stock pick? Is reevaluating every six months too much? Or should we shorten or lengthen this time frame? And do we ask the exact same questions as when we first purchased each stock? Love it. Kind regards, Matthew. Great questions, mate. Uh, how, many, how many questions? What questions would you suggest someone should think about before buying? Uh, I, I always start really broad. And, and the, one, the one for me is always, do I understand what they do? Yeah. And and that is that is beyond. I mean, anyone can you can look up a company and they'll say, oh, you know, we are shifting <laughs> paradigms in you know marketing methodology <laughs> using cloud-based and machine language technologies. At the end, you know, not that yeah. description. I mean, like, yeah. what do they literally? What do they do? And yeah. and how does that create value for their customers? Yeah. Awesome. And how are they doing it differently? I I, mm. I want to forget the share market. I mean, mm. I'm just like I, I'm. Here's a business. Okay, interesting. What do they do? And, and it sounds really simplistic. And I'll, I'll happily admit, there's a very significant number of companies I come across that even after sort of trying trying to read some annual reports and the rest, I really come away not understanding it. Um, I'll give you a recent example here. I, don't, I mean this with utmost of respect to the company because I'm, I'm sure it's a great company. But there's a company called Beam Communications. And they do satellite phones and this kind of stuff. And oh, yeah. you know they've had some really good, really good. Um, I mean, the revenue's grown really massively since they. Um, it's actually Worldcom. You might remember the business back in the day. Mm. They developed this technology and decided to go all in on that. Rebranded back in 2017, and revenue's growing like clappers. They're now profitable, so I think they're expecting big things in the year ahead. Um, and and it's sort of like on. You start looking at through all the fundamentals and the trajectory. We spoke to management recently, and you know, it seems like a decent enough story. But I, I just don't use these devices and I'm not in the market. And my stupid level take is, well, what about Starlink? Like, or the fact that even the latest iPhones have SOS functions where they tap into some of these low earth satellites. And I just, I don't know the technology or the industry well enough to have any educated opinion on where that's going and why someone would use one of these devices and not another one. Now I put that to management and they, they had an answer for that. And I don't want to make, make the answer about Beam, um, but it's a good example for me yeah. where I just, I mean, maybe, maybe the answer is we'll just spend another, you know, 20, 30 hours on it and you, and you will get it. Um, and maybe that's just me being lazy, not being prepared to do it. But I, I have, I kind of like, for me, it was just like, uh, it's just a bit too hard. I'll yeah. move on to something that some, a simpleton like me can wrap my head around a, a lot easier. Um, so anyway, I labored that point. The, so that, that, that's, if I can't get past that, then there's no point. And I'll just um, add quickly, mate, you, you want to you do it to, to, to a reasonable extent, not yes. can, can I repeat what they do, but do I really understand what they do? And that, they're, they're, they're yes. very slightly different wordings, but very, very important distinctions. It's, it's, it's really, it really is, you know, even if you want to, let's go back to Woolies, you know, it's like, oh, what do they do? Well, they obviously own a supermarket. Okay. Well, why would they be different to mm -hmm. uh, another supermarket operator? Where's their advantage? You know, where, they, this is the second question, really. What's the moat? You know, what's the competitive advantage that they, that they would, would have? Or how difficult, if, if someone gave me a billion dollars, could I stand up a competitor? And how hard would that be? would that be? That's a really interesting question as well. Um, another thing I tend to look at is the, the saying that you'll hear all the time in our industry is that the past is no guarantee of the future. And it's a really good one because it's really not. 
Um, we were talking about sort of Blockbuster and Kodak on Friday. Yeah. Um, but there is a signal, I think, in when you look at a business who has got some really decent revenue momentum. In other words, they've, you know, consistently growing sales. That's a good sign. And if they're not profitable, they're moving fast towards profitability and scaling well. Or if you're in a more established end of the market that they have consistent margins and consistent profit. Um, that's a really, that doesn't guarantee anything, but at least I know that I'm buying something that has a real business there and um, is not, you will find like statistically, I think if you look at the 2,200 companies on the market, something like two thirds don't make money. And I think this stat, I'm going to forget, but something like, you know, most never will. And it's not a conspiracy. It's just you know, business is tough. It's what you, you know, it's what you always hear that, you know, 90% of small businesses fail in the first year. Yeah, I bet they do because it's really, really tough, you know. Um, so so I, I want to at least start with something that is, I, I will do pre-profit. I generally don't do pre-revenue. Um, I want to. I want. I want to see evidence that they have a product or service in the market that, for whatever reason, someone out there is at least buying. So there's sort of three points. I'll let, I'll, I'll stop hogging the, the microphone here, but just to recap: Do I understand it? Do I feel as though they have some kind of competitive mm. edge? And do they at least have some kind of track record that shows that there is there is something there beyond good intentions? Love it, mate. I'm actually not going to describe any of those. I'm going to add to them. Uh, so if I'm going to add a couple of things. The first thing, next thing I would try and understand is I'm going to call it underlying earnings power. It's a phrase I've grown to love. Oh, yeah. And it's just yep. it's just looking at the business and frankly, it's financial. So this is where you got to pull out the pull out the annual reports online or, or whatever um, and understand what you know, how, how likely are they or what amount of money they're likely to be able to make on an ongoing basis. And so I guess I'm looking at things like, and Woolies is a great example because you can pretty much take any year for Woolies because it's about as non-cyclical a business as you can find. But you want to look at if a business has volatile earnings, what level of earnings is reasonable? Now, there is no easy answer. By the way, if you've answered Ram's questions already, you're much closer to answering this one because you can say, well, okay, I get that. Um, what's a good example, mate, of uh, building materials, right? Some years are great because they're building a trillion houses. Other years, the economy sucks. Um, I don't invest in oil companies, but again, think about the, the, you know, the changing profitability based on the changing oil price. Uh, think about mm. discretionary retailers, for example. This is a great time because uh, discretionary retailers have had a really, it's been really difficult. I mean, fun because if you're, I'm an investing nerd as Ram is, but we haven't had a proper, as I said, clean financial year since the 2019 financial year because we've had COVID come and then COVID go and then echoes of that and booms and busts and people have pushed spending forward and pulled spending back and, and trying to work out how much is genuinely, you know, uh, reliably able to be assumed there are some businesses that will have tough years this year because of the economic slowdown. Discretionary retail's in, you know, in negative same source sales territory right now. So very probable that the 2024 financial year, ending in eight months, will be down on the previous year. So your question is, well, does that mean this business is in structural decline? Okay, maybe it is. Or is it a one-off? Maybe it is. Was last year too high, or, or or was it you know reasonable? So trying to work out, pick a pick a business. Um, I'll use one I don't own because it's easier. JB Hi-Fi. You know you got to look at the numbers and say right, what what's a reasonable level of earnings for JB Hi-Fi? What can I assume is you know their, their base level of earnings? And it's not there's no perfect answer, and you can't do it with any sort of precision. So don't try. But just try and get a sense of what you know about the market and what's happened over time. How's that likely to play out? So you get a starting point for that, and that helps you with valuation a little bit. We talked about PEs. 
a business with a, you know, JB Hi-Fi is on a really low PE right now because people are expecting sales will, and profits will fall. Now, if they fall and stay low, then the PE is going to be too expensive. If they fall and come back, the PE might be cheap. It's kind of my view, but I could be entirely wrong. But, but having a sense of that, of what the underlying earnings power on an ongoing basis, because you're investing for the long-term future, not for the past. So how, how representative is the current level of earnings and sales? Uh, and then what's the future likely to look like? The last one I'll simply add on is the growth bit. So you've understood the business, as Ram said, you've understood where its competitive advantage is, you've understood the business's earning power, and then you're looking at the future and saying, what is this business likely to do in future? Now, if you're Woolies or a bank, you're limited, frankly, by the size of the market because the banks between the top four, they're 85-odd percent market share. Woolies and Coles, funnily enough, about the same, about 85% market share. They can grow a little bit by taking a little bit of share, but they're not going to get great growth. So how are they going to grow? Well, a little bit of price, maybe, a little bit of population, maybe, a little bit of GDP, maybe. Um, some of those overlap, by the way, so be careful you don't double count them. But, you know, Woolies is probably going to grow at population plus a couple of percent because that's about as much as you can expect, right? They'll, you know, pe people will need, if there's more people, there'll be more cans of baked beans sold. So let's assume that's likely. Uh, maybe Woolies take a couple of points of share from Aldi or Costco or IGA or the grocer, or they come up with ready meals and take it away from fast food or eating out or something. Or maybe they don't, maybe they lose that by the way. Uh, and maybe they can find a bit more in cost savings, maybe be a bit more efficient. So, you know, population plus a bit, maybe what, three, four, five percent a year max, probably on a, on a long term basis, would be my guess. That's not bad. Uh, but having a look at that now, can Kodak keep growing? You would have been right to say, eh, I'm not entirely sure. Mm. If a business is in structural decline, be mindful of that. So, the future growth trajectory, roughly, again, think about the slope of the line rather than the absolute numbers. Um, and that kind of put all that together. And then obviously we then look at valuation, which is a whole different conversation, but they're the bits I'd add to Rams, otherwise excellent answers. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to sort of limit yourself. You'll find that it's sort of, there's a, you're in a five-year-old who will then mm. go, but why? So you're like, okay, you answer yes. that question. That's great, but, but why? And, yeah. and you know, and then, and then, mm. and then, and you just you just you just keep going, and you keep going, and you keep going, and you, you. I don't I don't think there's a single company that I own, and some I've owned for years and years and years, where mm. I wouldn't be confident that if you really quizzed me on it, that I would know everything about it. I actually, yeah. I'm sure I don't. So there's always something that's more to learn. You don't you don't want to you don't want to suffer from analysis paralysis, which mm. is that. You know, you just never invest in anything because you you never get to that to that stage where you feel as though you understand it all. You don't need to understand absolutely every last thing, and you probably it's impossible to understand every last aspect mm -hmm. of it. But certainly, you want to get to a point. I, I think you know when you know. It's like that definition of porn. Like, what is it? Well, you know it when you see it, kind yeah. of thing. And it's yeah. sort of just a bit of a crass example, but a good one, I think. And you, I'm sure you've had this feeling too, mate, when you're. You're going through some companies and something subconscious almost just goes, mm. I like this. I like this a lot. And you keep digging and say, yep, that's, even now I like it even more. Then maybe <laughs> you, sometimes you convince, you're yeah. tricking yourself. I'm, I'm sure we're all guilty of that to some extent. But you'll, you'll find that some things just resonate and, and you build a conviction. And that conviction is, I, I know I often crap on about, but it is so important when, because you will be tested at times and you will be shaken out if you don't have any conviction. And I feel as though the, the point at which you can sort of take action and move it you know, away from theory into practice is when you can feel as though, look, I don't know everything about this. I'm sure I, there's a lot of things I don't know and there's I don't know what I don't know as well on top of that, but I feel as though I could be very comfortable holding this. 
And I think even if the shares were to drop 30% tomorrow, mm-hmm. I would still not only be confident to continue holding it, but I'd be tempted to buy more. Yeah. That's that's probably a good thing to ask yourself is like, well, how would I feel if the share, no, not because there's any, you know, they've just announced that the CFO has run off to Jamaica with all the, the money, uh, but you know, there's no change yeah. in what the business has done, but the share price drops 30%. Would I still be happy with that? Yeah. Yeah, and then if you can be answered, so that is yes, and an honest yes, mm-hmm. then you, you've probably you've probably understood it to a deep enough level where you you can take action. I like it, mate. Very very nicely done. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Let's get a question from Burrow. Good morning, fellas. Thanks again for getting up early to squeeze in your Sunday morning exercise before recording this episode. <laughs> I hope you're not too puffed to answer my question. Funnily enough, Burrow, we're fine. I like to be as close to 100% in the market as possible. And I don't like having a large percentage of cash sitting on the sidelines. Me either, mate. My solution, says Burrow, at times when quality companies are not being offered at attractive prices, is to keep dry powder in a low-cost Australian shares index fund e.g. the Vanguard Australian Shares ETF. The reason being that I can continue to benefit from any upside in the market as a whole, but can sell down the ETF to buy specific shares when opportunities arise. I assume the ETF would be less volatile than any single company. It would rise less in a boom, but also fall less in a bust. Can you please punch holes in this strategy? Cheers, Burrow. You go first. No, no, no. I'm I'm, I'm hogging it all. You go first. (laughs) All right. Um... So, Burrow, I, 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 no, I can't, I can't criticise the strategy in itself. I think that's perfectly fine as a strategy, and I think investing in shares, in my view, I've said before, is better than cash because over time shares go up, at least historically. No promises about the future. I always have to put that disclaimer in because I'm not allowed to say that they always will, but I think they probably always will. So, you know, probably is, is enough to get me out of trouble, uh, but no guarantees. So, I want to be invested. The longer I'm in cash, the more I think I'm likely statistically to miss out on opportunities. Yes, sometimes holding cash will mean when the market falls, I get a chance to buy something, which is great. Uh, market fell a couple of, you know, one half percent earlier this week. Uh, if I'd had some cash, I could have used it, but then it was probably up the month before or the month before that, right? So it's kind of one of those things where statistically over time, you look at the Vanguard chart again, as I say regularly and say, at which point should I have held cash? The answer is almost never because if you'd invested it early enough, you would have done really, really, really well. So time in the market is my favorite. So I, I can't disagree with that. The only thing I would say, Barrow, for what it's worth, is let's say you can't find quality businesses at good prices. Buying the ASX buys all those companies and more companies <laughs> at either lower quality or worse prices. Because you're saying, I can't find individual companies to buy, so I'll buy all of them, even though none of them look attractive to me. And what I guess I'm, I'm, I'm inferring here, and this is not a criticism at all, but just a, 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 bit, of, a bit of a thought is, even if you can't find specific individual companies that, that are absolutely knocking the door down, but you're going to buy the ETF anyway, um, if, if your ability to pick stocks, both on quality and valuation, is, is better than average, you're still better to buy those higher quality, better value stocks than buy the ASX, which by definition, you get the rest of the stuff that's even worse. So let's say there's nothing of great value or, or, or um, there'll, be, there'll be quality companies. So let's say there's nothing of great value right now. Nothing at all. Absolutely zero. When you're buying the ASX 200 or the ASX 300, whichever ETF you're buying, you're getting uh, the quality companies, the top 10 or 20 or 30 that you really, really like, plus the other 270 that are lower quality. And if that's true in the market, you can't get quality in the good stuff, price, sorry, valuation and attractiveness in the good stuff, the chances that the rubbish stuff is going to be more attractively priced are also reasonably low. 
So I would almost, if I was a betting man, say that if you think you can pick stocks and not everyone can, and that's fine, but if you think you can, I would almost say picking your, your highest quality, 5, 10, 15, 20 companies at less than, a, less than super attractive valuations is probably still going to give you a better return than buying a whole index, uh, in which case you would assume the others are probably either lower quality or worse valuation or some combination thereof. Does that make sense, Ram? Am I, am I explaining that well? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I think that's right. Um, yeah. <laughs> Go on, add some thoughts. Or no, disagree I, entirely. No, no, I'm not going to disagree at all. I, I just I, I just think that you can have a little bit each way, right? And and where you put the slider will depend on you know on your personal preference and experience and the rest of it. So. Go into the ETF, stay fully invested, and then just every now and again you'll come across something that you just actually I really like this, and it doesn't hurt to put ten percent of your money into that because you're still extraordinarily, extraordinarily diversified elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Um, <laughs> also, yeah, as to being fully invested or not, I think, I think that is the way to go. Uh, only because you just you won't ever pre pick it correctly not that's not me saying oh, you know bless your little cotton socks you know that you think you can none of us can no one can and and even when you see some of the people who get trotted out on cnn every now and again who you know predicted the gfc and that well that's the only thing they predicted and by the way they were predicting that for eight years before it happened right it's like me and property for goodness sakes like you, you, you lose all credibility at a certain point so um Bubbles always go on longer than you think. They, they always do. end unexpectedly. Yeah. It is always darkest before the dawn. Like the best time to buy never feels like the best time to buy. <laughs> so just get out of your just get out of your way, right? Yeah, that's also true. And and just just stay invested. Um, yes. It's the easiest thing in the world to say. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you automate it, mate. And I guess that's my other yeah, yeah. My, my other thought. That, that's why I'm a fan of dollar cost averaging. It's also part of the reason I'm not a fan of keeping cash on the sidelines because there's always a reason not to invest at any point in time. Yeah. Um, which, you know, sometimes you'll save money, sometimes it'll cost you money, but statistically over time, it's been more costly to be out of the market than in the market. Oh, I can speak from experience. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've actually had a pretty decent or so... I say I'm fully invested. I am. I that's not technically true. I do have a chunk of cash on the side, and that right. when I first started the business, I mean, I was just didn't have an income for yeah. several years, and it wasn't a view on the market that kept mm. some money. It was just I just needed to live, and I just I don't want to have to be in a situation where I'm selling shares if the market drops fifty percent. Um, so I've you know, and we've sort of had a couple of years of cash flow now, so that's sort of gradually changing. But has it helped me? No, it's really not. <laughs> Even after a horror year, you know, it, it's sort of like I would have been far better off just staying fully invested as it turns out. That being said, if I'd had my time again, I don't think I would have done anything differently, which is why the advice is different for someone who's in retirement and doesn't have the capacity to dollar cost average and doesn't have the income stream. Mm. You know, unless you've got $20 million or something stupid, then yeah, you can afford any drawdown and, and be just fine. But I, I think you, in that scenario, yeah, you do want to have a bit of cash on the sideline just because mm -hmm. you want to know that you can meet expenses and you can ride out. You never, yeah. you ride out any market turmoil. You never want to be a forced seller. A forced seller never be. And mm -hmm. and um, that's, that's the exception of the rule. Otherwise, just, you know, strap yourself onto that rocket and you know, off you go. It's, it's, it's going to be the scariest up and down of, of you know, a rocket's not the right thing. It's more as a bucking Bronco. Right. But it's, yeah, it is, yeah. it is something that, um, 
uh, we we know with as much as much confidence as we can probably muster without mm. being specific on the future that it'll probably work out if you just manage to do the average thing consistently and well and you know for the long term it they're they're incredible gains to be made uh, too often too often mate when i'm speaking to investors around the traps it's it's often it's the person you least expect who has had the best performance and they not always the person who will appear the most sophisticated yeah, and can right. give you a disc you know some really yep. highfalutin finance kind of talk just like, oh, you know, I learned from my parents that this was worthwhile and my whole life I've just sort of thought companies that I thought were, were decent, I bought some shares in and chucked them under the mattress. And a whole bunch of them did really bad, but a whole bunch of them did crazy well. And overall, on average, I've compounded and grown my wealth at like 12% per annum over 30 years. And, you know, they're probably worth many, many, many millions of dollars and, and weren't, weren't investment bankers or surgeons, just, you know, normal hardworking folk and- but but their superpower was consistency and 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 simplicity and and not trying to time and not trying to be a uh, you know looking at a sharp ratio for their portfolio or God knows what else. It just they just did that right, right. and it just it, there's a there's a bit, I I think about that a lot actually because sometimes I do worry that I am trying to be too clever by half when when it's probably not helping me. In fact, it may even be hindering me. I, I think that's I think that's absolutely true, mate. It's also, I think once you, I'll add to that only to say that it's like that with risk and reward. And we've, we've tried to say this regularly through the podcast and we'll keep saying it for years is reaching for the absolute maximum return is almost certainly a terrible idea. Because in, tr- in reaching for that, you're likely to trip yourself up for reasons of omission or commission or just simply things that happen to you along the way. Um, you know, I, I, one of Buffett's lines, I love, I love all of them, but, but, you know, don't risk what you have and need for what you don't have and don't need. And that yes. is, you know, you will invest at a compound rate throughout your investing career. And you know what, would I like 15%? Sure. Uh, but would I like a, a, a small chance of 15% or would I like a very good chance of 9 or 10%? I'll take the latter every day. Why? Yep. Because if I fail at the 15 and end up with four, then I'm much, much, much worse off. And so at some point you've got to say to yourself, the bullseye is in the middle for a reason, right? It's not the top of the dartboard. It's not the very, 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 very top. It's in the middle. And if you miss the bullseye a little bit, you're going to land somewhere perfectly fine. Yep. And that's kind of, you know, you want to... Investing is about being perfectly fine and then better than that if you can. Not... Not as good as you can, but maybe you end up terrible. Yeah. It's just, it's just the, the, the trade-off is not worth it. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, Slower City wins the race. There's a very good reason for that. Um, reliably adding, as you said, mate, some really pedestrian investment strategies end up being really good. There's some, yeah. a, a great Peter research that the best fund managers over long periods of time um, don't have to do much more than be adequate all the time. <laughs> and, and, and what I mean by that is the, they, they go from being in any one period perfectly adequate to being great over the long term why because they avoid blowing themselves up or doing something stupid yeah and it literally is it's it's survivorship bias but in a really positive way for those who know yeah. your your biases you don't just look at the survivor and say that's obviously how it's done because it doesn't necessarily work but what you can do is say the ones who end up winning are the ones who stay alive yeah and that that's that's you know again even winning is you don't need to win in investing i've written an article i haven't yet published but um we're working off the off the footy from from the weekend you know in footy you have one winner and and seven or eight and losers depending on which competition you're following you know and anyone who doesn't win sees it as a, as a failure and that's in professional sport that's fine in investing 
you don't need to even make the finals. You just need to have a result where you go, you know what? That yeah. was good. I'm, I'm, I'm now comfortable. I can afford my, my expenses. I can afford to retire. I can, you know, that, that, is, that is perfectly good. Risking yeah. it all on, on maybe getting a bit more, but maybe losing a lot, it's just not worth it. No, it really isn't. Mate, it's a question from Nick who says, Hi, Scott and Ram. Firstly, thank you both for all the work you do to bring sound, no BS advice to everyday investors like myself. I'm a long-time listener, first-time questioner. Thank you, Nick. I'm in my mid-30s, says Nick, and I have been with an overpriced super fund for far too long, thanks to my enterprise bargaining agreement at work. I researched all of the major super funds, and I think I'm going to switch to Host Plus. I like their very low fees, the choice of Australian and international low-cost index options, and more importantly, their host choice option that lets me pick my own stocks from the ASX 300 ETFs and listed investment companies if I want. But I have a reasonable amount of money to transfer over, which is currently invested in Australian and international shares, not indexed. I have the intention of investing it in Australian and international low-cost, broad-based ETFs, but I am aware of the terrible exchange rate at the moment to the USD. Is it wise once I transfer the funds to be buying back into international stocks at this time? But what are the other options? Should I keep it in the cash account until it looks more appealing? Or maybe just wait more heavily in Australian shares at this time? Am I overthinking it? He then says, Scott, I was thinking of signing up to Motleyfull ETF Investor, no plug intended, to help me with my super fund investments. Do you think this would be a suitable match for what I'm looking for to allow to follow along in my super fund and also help my investments outside super? I know you can't give personal advice, but any thoughts would be great. Thanks again. Keep up the great work. Full on, Nick. So, mate, he's got some international Australian shares. They're going to all be sold. He's going to change funds. And he's saying, well, do I reinvest in international ETFs right now, given the Australian dollar? That's a tough one. I guess if you're selling and buying in the same environment, it's a wash. Like, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't make any difference. Um, and the transaction costs you can't avoid by by doing this. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I I don't I don't think I would worry too much about that. Well, but I'm hesitant here. I'm I'm, I'm doubting myself. <laughs> Am I missing something? This is all psychology. Yeah. Um, see, Nick, the thing is, the dollar is so low right now, you could actually, even if you weren't changing super funds, you could sell those international shares right now at a low dollar, bring back even more Australian dollars and reinvest in Australian shares right now without changing super funds. But you're not. And neither am I. And that's okay. But now you're changing structure. You're saying, well, should I reinvest in those US funds? The, the, the answer should be the same. If you weren't going to sell the US investments now in the current fund, why would you not invest in them in the new fund? It, it, you know, it, it is a psychological difference only prompted by a change in structure. Now, I, I say that not to be critical and frankly, not even to say you should do the same thing as you're doing now. What I would ask you is if I made you go to cash today and brought it back to Australia, would you reinvest now back in what you already own in the US? In theory, you own those US shares because you like them, because you like the prospect and you like the businesses and you like their valuations and you like their futures. And so that probably tells you a whole lot. I, uh, but, but it's a really, really, really great question. And it's why Ram and I are both hesitating. Mm. I've said before around half of my portfolios in the US, about half in Australia, roughly. I don't know what the numbers actually are right now, but close enough. It could be temps on either side, quite frankly. I don't do the math that often. But uh, particularly with the Australian dollars, I haven't bothered converting it. Probably higher actually in the US because the Australian dollar has fallen. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I even this, literally this morning before we jumped to this podcast, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if I should sell in my US shares with the Australian dollar at 63 cents and bring the money back. And here's the thing, I could do that, but it would require me to have more confidence in the businesses I would invest in then in Australia 
that I have in the businesses I invest in the US, knowing that the exchange rate is going to go both ways over, over the long term. And I'd have to pay capital gains tax on some of that. Now, you don't have to, Nick, because you're going to sell anyway to, to move funds. So you, again, you're in a different situation. Um, I have Amazon. I have Berkshire. As everyone knows, I've got a whole lot of other, three, not a whole lot, three or four other US companies, uh, maybe five. Um, you know, do I, should I sell them and bring the money back? Oh, part of me thinks, yeah, maybe I should. But then I often also think, well, am I going to find the same quality as Berkshire or Amazon over here? Uh, am I going to be sufficiently diversified if I invested here rather invested over there? Uh, do I expect those companies to keep growing over there? Yeah, I do. If you take uh, Berkshire, for example, the shares are up about 30% over the last 12 months while the Australian dollar has been falling. Now, you know, what, what's going to happen next? <laughs> I don't know. I wish I knew. It'd be great to know. Um, so it's a really, really difficult one. I don't, again, I can't tell you what you should do, Nick. So let's obviously start with that, as you well know. Um, I would favor, see, and you'd mentioned being too clever by half before, Ram. Mm. Honestly, here's what, I, if I was setting up an account from, from scratch, I would still invest in the US today at, with exchange rate at 63 cents. Why? Because I want the diversification. I want to buy some of those great quality companies in the US. Mm. Um, for the sake of it, for what it's worth, I own businesses like Mercado Libre, which is a uh, international, uh, South, uh, Southern American, Latin American kind of uh, Amazon, uh, eBay kind of combo, PayPal combo. Uh, I own Disney. I own a little insurance company called Markel Corporation, which is often considered a mini Berkshire. Uh, I own Shopify. I think that's it. There's probably others. Plus Amazon and Berkshire. I like those businesses a lot. I like their futures. Uh, I'm also relatively hands-off as an investor. I sell really infrequently, so I'm happy to kind of let them do their thing. So if I didn't own any Berkshire today, would I buy some? I probably would, yeah. I'd probably send some money across the US and buy some. Uh, would I maybe not put as much in as I would if the dollar was at 80 cents? Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true. So I would absolutely probably, hedge is the wrong word, I don't mean in a formal sense, but I probably would think about um, putting more in Australia than in, than in the US right now. And if, if and when the dollar goes up, any incremental investments you're making can then be very balanced in the US. That's probably how I'd do it. I don't have a real number in my head. I think I'd probably be tempted to go something like two-thirds Australian, one-third US right now. Because I don't want nothing, right? I think there's, I think Amazon's future, I own Google too. Google's future, I think it's really bright. I, I, I don't know that, you know, I, I wouldn't want to bet that Google's growth won't outpace the, the fall of the exchange rate or the, or the subsequent return of the, in the exchange rate. I think Google's long-term future is really attractive because we also don't know how long the exchange rate stays low for or how fast it recovers. Yeah. So, you know, just be careful of that as well. Nice. Um, in terms of the ETF investor, Nick, I don't want to give an ad, but uh, yes, um, we recommend ETFs uh, that anyone can follow in their portfolios. If they're building an ETF portfolio, it's one way you can do it. Um, I will give the link just for fun. It's um, fool.com.au forward slash join dash ETF dash investor. It's 29 bucks to join for the first year. It's stupid cheap. Um, I think the long term, it's like $39 a year for renewal. It's really, really cheap. Um, I think it's super great value. Um, but if it's not for you, that's cool. But yes, we do recommend a, a, a an allocation across a range of ETFs. Um, so yeah, if, if the, that's what you're looking for, we can hopefully help you out. But mate, you can do it yourself. There's plenty of resources online to help you build an ETF portfolio as well without without paying us for the privilege. Anything on that, mate? No, I think that was perfectly done. All right. One last question. Hi, Scott and Ram. Thanks for your podcast and bringing thoughtful commentary to investing and markets. I've always liked Uncle Warren's advice that people who don't have the time or inclination to analyze businesses should invest in broad index ETFs, while for those who have the capacity to analyze businesses, 
They're better off concentrating their investments on a relatively small number of companies. In fact, Buffett has suggested that three wonderful businesses is all that's needed for the latter group. As a thought experiment, what would you think of a three ASX company portfolio of Macquarie Group, Seven Group Holdings, and Salt Pats? Do you think these would deliver superior returns to an ASX 200 or 300 ETF? At the risk of appealing to my hindsight, as to hindsight bias in my amateurish backtesting indicates these three have outperformed the ASX 300 on a total return basis by about double over the last 10 years. I suppose the irony is that these three companies are conglomerate-esque in their structure and like Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, which presumably would be one of Buffett's three wonderful businesses, they have fingers in a lot of listed and unlisted pies, so are highly internally diversified anyway. The risk of Rob Milner, Kerry Stokes or Shamara Wickramanayaka having a brain fart or series of brain farts that sink their respective businesses is not quite zero, but pretty close to it, you'd think. Is it possible to be overthinking this? Is it acceptable to have part of your portfolio in a passive structure like an index ETF and part in a small number of individual companies? It could be like wearing a belt and suspenders at the same time. Does that even matter uh, uh, if it makes you some kind of investment schizophrenic in the eyes of Dr. Buffett? With all my foolhardiness, Alex. Hmm. Really great question, mate. Three, three wonderful businesses. What do you reckon? Macquarie, Seven Groups, Holdings and Solpats. Yeah, you could you could definitely do worse than that. I don't know if they'd be the three I'd pick, but then you just sort of get into the realm of like you know mm. subjectivity. I, yeah. Like again, they they all look that they've all done really well over time. Um, I'd be mindful that Macquarie and Seven probably reasonably um, economically cyclical in the mm. sense. It's not a bad thing, by the way. But you know, with three just three stocks, if 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 we hit a recession or when we hit a recession at some point and markets really tank, I mean, they Macquarie in particular is probably going to get hit pretty hard. Their deal flow mm. slows up quite substantially. The business will be fine, right? But it just, it just I mean, you're going to be, you're going to be a lot more volatile than you are almost by definition than a, than a, a, a broad, a more broadly diverse, diversified portfolio. Mm. Um, but if you're comfortable with that, then yeah, a, 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 absolutely. Um, and seven, I guess is, there's a lot of, uh, construction-oriented businesses in there, which, again, might – I'm hesitating here, mate, because I, I personally I'm someone who doesn't care too much about cyclicality, yeah. but I, I feel as though it's worth pointing out because it would be a feature of a portfolio like that where, you know, I, I, could, I could imagine in a, in a pretty brutal recession slash bear market it gets hit pretty hard. Um, at the same time, across the cycle, it probably does pretty well. <laughs> um, yeah. So whatever they are, you know, you shouldn't have a broad basket. A small basket is fine. You just watch those eggs like a hawk. Like you really need to thoroughly, deeply understand those businesses and have a high degree of confidence in them. I've, I've long said that I'm, I'm very, well, I'm not that concentrated, but I'm a pretty concentrated investor. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I tend to be really comfortable. If I've got 90% of my money in 10 stocks, I'm very comfortable with that. So, I, I, you know, things have to go really bad across a whole bunch of companies for me to mm. do badly out of that. Mm. And I think too often, I'm also a big fan of Buffett's idea of was it Lynch or Buffett? You know, one of the two where it's diversification, where yeah. Yeah. it is a it is a it can really hurt you in the sense that 
I mean, you either go the, you either, you're all in or you're not. You, know, you buy a broad-based ETF and, and as I say, go, go play golf, you know, do something that you like and you'll be just fine with that. Mm. But if you're going to be managing an individual portfolio which holds 40 different stocks, it's just like you, you're a masochist at some point. There's so yeah. much to sort of yeah. keep an eye on and, and, and um, you know, even if one 10X is in that and they're all reasonably evenly weighted, it just doesn't move the dial. It, it, yeah. Diversification protects you from the, from the horrible disaster, but it also protects you, quote unquote, from, from the wonderful outperformer as well. Yeah. So I don't know, that's a horribly rambly answer. Save me here, mate. Give, give me some no, insights. It's, it's really nicely put, mate. Um, I, can't, I can't answer it either, other than to say, other than to say, um, so I think if you're holding three companies on top of an ETF, then those three companies become smaller overall. So if you're saying, well, if I, if I had a third of my money in each of the three companies, that's one thing. If I had half my money in an ETF and the other half in those three companies, okay, well, the weighting is now you know, 16% rather than a third. And if I have 75% of my money in an ETF and you know the other 25%, then I'm only down to 8% per company. And so it does depend on how else you structure the rest of your portfolio. I would absolutely recommend against holding only three businesses. Um, Buffett has said you only need to own three businesses, but as you rightly yourself pointed out, Alex, you also said for most people, an ETF is the right solution. And so... I am generally someone who tries desperately to remain humble and to not give in to hubris. And some people say that's not very hard because I don't have that much to be proud about. And that's probably right too. But, uh, but in terms of the, the, the way I invest, I think it's just not taking unnecessary risk. There, are, there is more than three wonderful businesses out there or more than three worthy businesses out there. So again, if you've got 75% in ETF, then it's not, not an issue because you've, you've already done the diversification. I wouldn't just hold three businesses. You couldn't make me do it. Um, by the way, I, I think they're fine. I'll, I'll get to the businesses in a second. Um, I have said, if you make me hold two and put them in the bottom drawer, I'd buy Sopats and Berkshire and be more than happy to come back in, in 20 years, right? So um, whilst I wouldn't own three, I'd own those two happily. Um, not, 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 by the way, foolproof, but if you maybe only hold two, that would the two I'd choose and it'd be an easy decision to be, uh, you know, daylight, third, fourth, fifth, eighth, ninth, and tenth. But um, not, not impossible that either or both go badly. So I, I wouldn't want to just do that. Uh, I am with you, Ram. I've probably got, I probably got 90% of my top 10. It's probably likely. Um, uh, so Berkshire, Solpats, Corporate Travel, a few others. Um, I, so there's that. I, I, would, I wouldn't want three. I'd probably want at least 10, probably. I don't think I'd want to own less than 10 personally. Again, Alex, you do what you do, you, but I wouldn't want to own less than that. Um, I so thinking about those businesses I love founder owned businesses I love high insider ownership and and CEOs who are you know running the place because that you know they're going to watch the place like a hawk you know they only care about long term value they're not looking to maximize the share price to make some stockbroker or fund manager happy uh, Kerry Stokes is going to be Kerry Stokes right he's going to do his thing and that's great so I, I love investing behind that. Rob Milner's the same. I'm sure he doesn't give a stuff about what he thinks about Solpats. Um, his money, his family's money, a whole lot of other people's money. And by the way, Solpats is a really strong long-term shareholder um, orientation. They care about the share price. Of course they do. But um, they're going to make the investments they think are right for their for their investors. So those, those businesses, I think, are great. Macquarie, I would just mention Babcock and Brown, not to, not to continue to... to uh, tar Macquarie with that brush but just to remember that any business in finance that, it, that employs meaningful amounts of leverage as part of its business is just risky by definition and I wouldn't if you, I would know just three as I said if I did 
I wouldn't make Macquarie one of them personally. Um, I like Macquarie. It's a buy for us at Motley Fool Share Advisor. There's a free stock tip. Um, I think the future is bright for the company. They've got some super smart people. They're super aligned incentive-wise. Um, Tara does a wonderful job running that business. So I like it a lot, but am I sure it's uh, <laughs> rock solid enough? Uh, no, I'm, I'm really not. Not that I'm predicting anything else. I just Our job, as I just finished saying with the last question, is not to you know maximize the returns at, at the at the possible, not try and maximize the returns at the risk of losing a lot of the money if I get it wrong. So I wouldn't make Macquarie one of those personally. I would think so. And you roll back conglomerates, mate. I, I would actually throw West Farmers in there probably inside of Macquarie. Um, similar reasons, similar outperformance, similarly internally diversified, but that's part of the beauty. If you're only going to hold three, they're, they're great businesses to own. I think some other great quality businesses in Australia. I think uh, Woolworths, I think, is one of the best quality companies in the ASX. You're not going to get spectacular returns from it, but it's a great business. Uh, the problem you got with buying these things is most people already know a lot of that, as Ram kind of said before, you're paying up for the presumed quality or the perceived quality. That's not necessarily bad. I would happily do that. Uh, we've launched a service not long ago at Motley Full. I'm not going to give a plug. Uh, it's called Odyssey. You can't buy it. So it's not, uh, not available, so I'll mention it. Um, and and we, we're, we're, we're shamelessly focusing on quality first. We're saying quality, then growth at a reasonable price. That's the entire idea of the service for, for the reasons you've just highlighted. I think I think quality business will go on beating the market over time as long as you're not paying too much. You don't have to pay a dirt cheap price. It's Buffett's you know, wonderful business at a reasonable price rather than reasonable business at a wonderful price. I always, always want the former, um, certainly for a long-term investment. So that's that's kind of my, my broad answer. Uh, similarly, probably rambling. Um, but I think that's what I would I would do um, your last question is it, is it acceptable to be part of a portfolio in a passive structure like an ETF and in part a small number of individual companies I think that's a perfect way to do it if you want to buy a few I think that's a, that's a wonderful wonderful way to go um, I, I think that's perfectly fine as I said I, I don't dislike Macquarie I don't dislike Seven Group I like Kerry Stokes running that business I'm a you know if I had to if I had to choose one criteria here's, here's, here's one as we finish the podcast round if I choose one criteria for investing and I can only choose one it would be high insider ownership mm. that would be it um, I, yeah, if I if I only choose one, there's there's nothing that would beat that because if I've got Rob Milner, Kerry Stokes, Jerry Harvey, David Dicker at Dicker Data, um, Tony Brown at ARB, um, there's millions I'm not thinking of, Ram. But you know, uh, if I could, if you made me choose just one criteria, I'd hate it. But if I had to, it would be high insider ownership for sure because those are the people who are going to be running these things the right way for the right reasons with the right care and passion and organizational DNA. So that's probably how I'd, I'd tilt my, my idea. Um, I mentioned West Farmers before that they don't match that. Um, they do have a long uh, internal DNA. Uh, so, you know, you could go for, for only founder owners and go that way, but that's how I think about it. Yeah, you know, if I was uh, king of the land, I'd, I'd almost be tempted to make a rule that you can't be a director of a company unless you have at mm. least a quarter of your money in it. You know, something crazy like that, uh, which would never happen, right? But I, I feel as though Taleb wrote a good book. He's written lots of good books. He's a interesting individual, and I don't agree with him on a lot of things, but he's a good writer. And he, he, one of his books is Skin in the Game, right? And it doesn't guarantee success, but you know people are really trying, right? Like, you're really trying. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it is. I, I agree. If there was one mm. metric to look at, that's that's a that's a pretty good one. You could probably form a portfolio around that. It's just like you can only buy companies where the person running it is yeah. has a significant portion of their their family wealth tied up to it. it I, I wouldn't be surprised if you back tested that. You got a uh, you got a pretty decent outperformance. Even better if they were the founder or from the founding company. 
Yeah. That's what Danny Family, sorry. Go on. That that being that being said, there is I I have seen a number of examples where there's a different skill set in starting a company and running a small company. That's true. As opposed to to running a large mm. company. The the trouble that the founder has is that they were everything within the organization at one point. Like they yeah. literally did everything. And it takes a it takes a certain well it takes a different skill set to be able to let go of that micromanagement and and be someone who's more about uh, delegation because mm. you know the, the the CEO of Woolies can't be across everything they just can't so you need to sort of let that go and sometimes you do see people struggle in in, in that regard and um, so I, I only point that out because you sometimes see that in very small cap land where it's like. This this person is deserves a whole bunch of accolades and success because they did take something extremely small and grow it into something that's big by any sort of small business standard, but tiny by ASX mm. standards. And they just sort mm. of they languish there because they're never able to let go of the reins. <laughs> and they, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, um, yeah. I don't want to sort of name any names there, but but yeah, <laughs> I, I'm 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 just like a a, a, a a slightly different sort of wrinkle on, on that thought. But overall, I 100 percent agree. That's a good point. I end up, I wouldn't just use one criteria, right? So the things you're mentioning absolutely come into it. But if you had to just pick one thing, yeah. I don't I don't think you can go past that one. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Mate, we've uh, talked for long enough. Hopefully we've entertained and amused and hopefully educated our listeners at the same time. Mate, enjoy going got the second half of your run. You finished the first half, you're off for the come in. I might, I might do some laps. Might do a beach swim. <laughs> you might. You're not going to the way. <laughs> chances, chances are not good. <laughs> Grab another coffee and uh, yeah, scroll through Twitter. We'll see. <laughs> if, however, you are down at Bondi and you see Andrew Page doing laps uh, across the across the beach, you'll know why. You've heard it here first. <laughs> uh, Will you come good. back next Friday? Yeah, mate. Looking forward to it. Beautiful. Until then, thanks for listening. Full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.